The story we're going to read this morning from Acts chapter 4 talks about some people who couldn't help, they couldn't help themselves. And I want you to pay attention to the story. That's just a line out of the story, but I want you to, to listen to the story. It's part two of something we began to explore two weeks ago. And this morning, uh, we're going to read right now verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 4. I'm going to invite you to stand as we listen to God's word from Luke's telling of some of the happenings in the earliest followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. And so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So I just want to take you back for a moment. This story takes up, in a real sense, it's a single story. It's Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, but there's a lot to it, and so we divide it into two pieces. But let me take you back in time to Acts chapter 3, what we talked about two weeks ago. So Peter and John, it's an afternoon. They called it the ninth hour. It's about 3 o'clock in our scale of things, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We don't know what day of the week it is. But Peter and John, along with many other people in Jerusalem, were going up to the temple. A temple that was still being constructed. Herod's temple. It was a magnificent structure. 
And they were going there to pray because it was the time of day in the afternoon when a sacrifice was typically offered, but when people especially would come together and they would pray to God. And Peter and John, even though they were followers of Jesus, had not in their own mind ceased to be Jews. In fact, their understanding of their faith and their identity as Jewish people was that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah promised by God to Moses and the prophets. And from the Hebrew scriptures, they had understood and come to to understand in deep ways what Jesus was all about in the real meaning of his life. They'd walked with him, and they'd observed him, and they'd followed him and gotten to know him. They'd seen what he had done, and they'd seen how he'd changed the lives of other people, and they had experienced a change in their own life. Everything had seemed to fall apart not that many weeks before when Jesus was arrested and crucified and killed and buried. But then again, everything was changed one more time when a very dead Jesus who was sealed in a tomb and was dead was suddenly alive. Alive again, but in some ways more alive than he'd ever been before. And over a period of 40 days, Jesus had spent time with them again and again, making it absolutely unmistakable that he really was alive. He really had been dead. He really was alive. And explaining to them and reiterating and going over the stuff they'd seen and experienced in the previous three years. He opened the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures and he helped them understand from all that God had said through the prophets and from the story and from the sacrifices and from the poems and the songs and the prayers. He helped them understand through that Hebrew Scripture that he himself was the key to the meaning of what had been going on and what had been promised before. And then he told them in a final way before he was going to leave for a season and we would say right now that he left for a long season. A 2,000-year season so far. He said, I'm going to come back, but I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to be on your own. When I go, I'm going to send my spirit on you. The gift of the Father. And I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until it happens. I want you to be together. I want you to be looking for it and expecting I want you to be praying for it. And when this promise comes, you When the Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. Wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you walk, whatever you do, locally and globally, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you are going to be my witnesses. And we know what had unfolded in the coming weeks, that a week and a half after that, those same disciples, along with about 100 plus other people, were gathered together as they had been day by day, and they were praying to God, and they were longing and looking for the promise that Jesus had promised to them. And suddenly that promise, the person of the Spirit, came. There was a presence among them all, but there was also a presence in each one of them, a, 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 a flame of fire above their heads, and an ability to speak that was so unusual they, they were mostly from the boonies up north, outside of the, 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 the most blessed areas of Israel, outside of Jerusalem. But here they were, suddenly speaking and communicating with Jews who were from all over the known world, who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost Day. And Peter hopped up. Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't known as a public speaker. In fact, he was known most recently as a very cowardly person. Well, not very. I, I might have been cowardly too. 
If you're not sure that you'd survive if you stood tall because they've just arrested the man you've committed your life to and you're watching it all go downhill fast and it looks like he's about to be killed and executed, are you liable to jump up and down and say, hey, I'm with him? Or are you most likely to keep a low profile, even if you stick close by? And when someone says, I think I've seen you with him before, say, uh-uh, not me. Never, never known the man. That's the Peter who hopped up and spoke to thousands of Jews and explained what had been going on. And there was something powerful about the story he told about Jesus, so powerful that it cut into their hearts and their minds and their lives, and they sensed that what, what had been going on with Jesus was suddenly about their own lives. And they said, Peter, what are we supposed to do about this? And Peter said, I want you to change the way you think about things and turn turn away from the things you've given yourself to and turn to Jesus and to trust him. And I want you to be baptized and you will be saved. And 3,000 of them responded that day. So it wasn't long after that that Peter and John on this particular afternoon are going up to the temple to pray along with lots of other people and there was a guy off to the side. The truth was he was in everyone's peripheral vision. He'd been there so many times for so many years that people knew who he was but they no longer really paid any attention to him. You know when you see the same thing every day you don't need to look at it anymore? Especially when someone's asking for your help. Especially when someone's asking for your money. Any of you know what it's like to drive up to a stop sign and see somebody standing right there? And do any of you know how to ignore that person on purpose? Do you know how it's possible to keep your vision straight as can be and you don't look over at all? Right? That's what people were good at with this guy off to the side. He was there always, always asking. Most people probably gave him something once or twice in their life. Peter and John had walked by him before. Maybe they'd given him something before, but he was in their peripheral vision too. But suddenly he cried out, and Peter and John heard his cry, and they looked at him. They really looked at him. They looked him in the eye and they found he wasn't looking at them and they said to him, look at me. Peter spoke and he said, guess what? I got nothing. I got no money. I don't even even have any coins. Silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And do you know what the guy did? He did nothing. What would you do? He'd been lame, unable to walk from his birth, from the womb, from before he was born. He was unable to move. Maybe someone had told him before. Various times in his life, he'd intended something in his mind. He said, I'm going to try to do this. And it didn't matter how hard he tried. It, it, It didn't matter if he listened to some message that was an inspirational message. It told him, you can do it if you really want to. He couldn't. So when those words were spoken, he didn't even know that something had happened. So Peter reached out and grabbed a hold of his hand. It says he reached with his right hand. I love that. Every once in a while in the Bible, there is a very specific reference. 
minute. I, I don't remember what hand somebody uses. I would just say, reached out with his hand. But Luke says he reached out with his right hand. Sounds like Luke had spoken to someone who was there. Maybe it was Peter. Maybe Peter told him, I remember this one time. Just reach. I remember it was my right hand. Maybe he was left-handed, and he remembered doing it with his right hand. That's why it stood out. I don't know. But he reached out, and he gave him, he pulled him up. And in being pulled up, he was able to do what nobody figured he was able to do. He stood. He'd never stood before. He walked. He'd never walked before. He, he ran. He'd never run before. He jumped. He'd never jumped before. He did it all, and suddenly, people were streaming into the temple. They stopped streaming. Suddenly, everybody's peripheral vision became the focus of their vision. They were looking at this guy, and they were trying to figure it out because the truth was, even though most of the time they looked straight ahead and did not look at him, they all knew who he was. They all recognized him. And they couldn't figure it out. And so they started gathering around more and more people. And Peter started explaining, like he had on Pentecost Sunday, he started interpreting what had happened. And he went back to the same explanation. He talked about Jesus. The Jesus you rejected. The Jesus you crucified. The Jesus you, given a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, you chose Barabbas and not Jesus. But the Jesus you all rejected, God did not reject him. He was God's special servant. And when he was crucified, God blessed him and God gave him life again and raised him up. That's the Jesus who's the cause of what happened to this man. It's not me. We all look for naturalistic explanations for everything. On Pentecost Sunday, people heard these followers of Jesus speaking in dialects and languages. There's no way they knew coming from Galilee. No way. And so someone suggested they're drunk. You've seen people do lots of things when they're drunk. But, uh, an explanation someone could understand, but it didn't explain what happened on Pentecost. Peter got up and he said, really? Is that the best you got? It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. And even if they were, would they be speaking in other languages they didn't know? And so when people gathered around looking at Peter, Peter said again, you're looking for some explanation, you're grasping at straws. It's not because of some special ability I have. It's not because I was able to fill him with confidence. It's because of the name of Jesus and the reality of Jesus. I know about Jesus. And now he knows about Jesus too. That's why he's able to stand. People were hanging on the words again. And at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, The priests and the captain and the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them while they were speaking. And they were greatly disturbed. They were troubled by what was going on. Why? Because they didn't want this talked about. The apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. This Sanhedrin, the core of it were Sadducees. They were the most elitist Jews there were. They were the powerful. They were the blessed. They were the the first class. They were the 1% of Jerusalem. And they did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They were the ones who cooperated most of all with the Romans because their situation was, was pretty good. Might not have been good for all the other Jews, but it was pretty good for them. 
And they didn't want this talk about resurrection, especially in light with Jesus, because word on the street was that Jesus, who'd been killed, was alive again, that he'd been raised. They weren't interested in finding out if it was true. They weren't interested in knowing Jesus. They wanted the news stopped and snuffed out. And so when they saw these guys and heard this, they tried to do what they could. It was late in the day, and so they grabbed him. And they incarcerated him and put him in jail for the night. They had enough power to do that. The Romans gave him that that right. Here's the thing. They couldn't stop it. Verse 4 says, But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. More and more responding. And the next day, these same people, the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law, met in Jerusalem. Annas was there. Caiaphas was there. Some other guys we don't know, John, Alexander, others of the high priest family. Guess who were gathered? They were the same group that had been gathered just a few weeks before to get rid of Jesus. And now they were gathered again to try to snuff out the same thing. Their first effort to get rid of Jesus didn't work. And now they were hoping they could get rid of Jesus by getting rid of his followers. So they had Peter and John brought before them. They began to question him, how are you doing this? By what power, what name? What gives you the right to do this? And Peter was a little taken back. By what right do we help someone do something nice to someone who's never been able to walk? Are you so scandalized by someone who's never been able to walk, being able to walk? How's that not good? But Peter made it clear. I want you to know, you and all the people of Israel, that it is through Jesus, through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. That's how this man walks and moves. This man stands before you healed. And then Peter quotes something he got from Jesus, from Psalm 118. This Jesus is the stone you builders rejected who's become the cornerstone. Can you imagine a construction project going on? And there are various stones that are being used to to create this building and this edifice. Some are chosen and others are rejected. That doesn't look like the right cut. There's something wrong with that. It's thrown off to the side. And somebody else comes up and gets that stone that's been discarded and grabs a hold of it and carries it over and puts it into place. And it makes everything complete. It is the star stone in the edifice. That's what God did with Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the leaders. You said no to him. But God chose him. And Peter keeps going. And he says this in verse 12. Salvation. That word for salvation, saving is the same word that's used to describe what happened to that lame man when he could suddenly walk. He was being saved physically. But now it seems like Peter's going, he's going broad. He's not just looking at the healing of a man's ankle and foot, and he's able to move, but now he's doing the big picture. Salvation, wholeness and completeness, being saved in the fullest and largest sense, is found in no one else For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They put them away. They went off to the side. They met together again. What are we going to do? 
We don't want this to spread any further. You know, when there's a, a disastrous events like in California and you put people together in emergency shelters and any kind of sickness breaks out, you want to squelch that. You don't want it to spread. That's how these people thought about the word, about Jesus, about the message, about the resurrection. It was like a contagion in Jerusalem. There was something loose among the people and it was infecting them and it was changing them. In their minds, it was making them sick and demented. But in God's plan, this contagion was a contagion of health and salvation and wholeness. They wanted to stop the spread, but it was God's intention that it would continue to spread. They didn't know what to do except to, to, to threaten them, and so they called him in again, and they just said to him, do not talk anymore about the resurrection, and do not talk anymore about Jesus. And then Peter said, we can't help it. We just can't help it. What's right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to God? (laughs) Really? You be the judge. Should we listen to God or to you? As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. For Peter and John, the amazing thing was, what God was doing in their lives was so organic, it was so deep, that they could not help being what Jesus wanted them to be. Matthew says, go into all the world and make disciples. Sounds like something we go and do, and it is. But the words that Jesus uses in Acts chapter 1 are words of identity. You will be my witnesses. And wherever you go, you will be my witnesses. It's who you are. And that's what Peter and John are finding to be the case. That as they're going, as they're walking around Jerusalem, as they're seeing a lame man and they sense God's spirit saying to them, help him, say something to him. I will be with you and I will change his life. And they act on it. Suddenly they find themselves talking and it's like they can't stop talking. Grace can't stop wagging her tail. But Peter and John can't stop talking about Jesus. Can you stop talking about Jesus? Can you avoid ever talking about Jesus? You know what? For me, that's a searching question. I'm I'm a professional. I'm Sunday morning. I can get up here and talk. But what's it like when I'm someplace else and I'm not in a role? Peter and John were not pastors. They were not ministers. They'd never gone to school There are two keys to the organic reality that was alive in them. The first is this. It's found in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. When God sent his Spirit, his plan was not that his Spirit would lightly touch us, but that his Spirit would live within us. His Spirit would take up residence in us. His Spirit would fill us overflow, that we would overflow with Jesus' presence by his Spirit. That we would find ourselves under this powerful, alien, but no longer completely alien presence. That God would be with us. That God would be in in us. 
and that God's presence would enable us and make us different than we would ever otherwise be. On on Pentecost Day, they'd looked and they'd said, maybe they're drunk. (laughs) Paul took up those same words, that same comparison in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And sometimes people see some, there must be some kind of analogy there. And yet there's something so different. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher in the 20th century, talked about that. He, he said, he was a doctor, he thought about these things as a doctor. But he said, that alcohol is a depressant. It lowers things. It, 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 it removes, um, it, it, it lightens our inhibitions, it takes them away, it, it lessens the clarity of our thoughts. We lose our control over ourselves and come under the control of something else entirely. And that's not what the Spirit is. The Spirit's not a depressant. The Spirit is more like a stimulant in our lives. But when he comes in, he doesn't control us in such a way that we lose self-control. In fact, the Spirit gives us, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And that when we're under the, the influence and we're filled with God's Spirit, we actually have an ability to direct our own lives and to do what we're called to do that we would never otherwise have. Jesus had said, you know what, the days are going to come, disciples, when you are brought before certain situations like this one. We are hauled before rulers and people with power and authority. And you're going to have to speak. And I want you to know that the Spirit is going to be with you and the Spirit will give you the words to say. And here's Peter and John and they're already finding out the truth of that. How is it that they can't help talk about Jesus? Because they are filled with God's presence in his Holy Spirit. And that is an experience that God calls us to every day of our lives. To open up ourselves again and again. Spirit, fill me and guide me. The the second thing is found in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They saw the courage. They saw a boldness. Here they were, uneducated, Galileans, of no account in this city at all. Before the most powerful people in town. Before people who had sometimes the the power of life and death over them. They were educated, this council. They were accustomed to people paying attention to them and shutting up and listening to what they had to say. And here were these guys, totally unintimidated. They, They were just not trying to weigh their words very carefully. They weren't afraid. They were not afraid. They just said. They spoke. How do you explain this? And some of them, it says, they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Like that slave girl on the night of of Jesus' um, betrayal saw Peter, and she recognized that he'd been with Jesus. And maybe some of them, literally, that was the level of recognition But I think it's way, way deeper than that. They recognized, not just because they'd seen him and they saw, yep, they were with him.
but they saw that being with Jesus had changed them and molded them and made them something different. Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls disciples and he gives them a task, a mission in the world. But before the, the purpose was ever to give a mission, the very first thing he did was he called them so that they would be with him. Brothers and sisters, God wants to do things in our lives and he's called us through his son to be witnesses. And if we will ever be people who can't help it, it will be because we are people who are not strangers to the Holy Spirit, but we're filled with him. He guides us and he changes us and he makes us different. And it will be because we are people who in our own way, different than Peter and John, who walked on earth with Jesus. But nonetheless, we get to know Jesus and we have walked with him for a long time. And we know the story of his life on earth and we know what happened and we can give witness to the events in history of when this man walked and what he said and what he did and how he was crucified and how he rose again and how he was seen by others. But we will also be able to give witness and testimony of our own experience. I know many of you know what it means to say this. And if you don't, I long for this experience for you. That you can talk about how Jesus has been with you in life. In moments and experiences of blessing, but in moments and times of challenge and difficulty, as a human being, as an employee or an employer, as a student, as a friend, as someone blessed, as someone excluded, as a child, as a parent, as a citizen, can you imagine all of the kinds of experiences and settings when, where we find life not so easy and we can be knocked about? And to know and be able to tell others, I negotiated my way through that because I wasn't alone. Jesus was with me and I was with Jesus. And when we experience that, wow, then it will be true of us that we won't be able to help ourselves because God is so alive in us through his son and through his spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you. Lord God, we thank you for the profound ways in which you changed people's lives 2,000 years ago. Peter, cowardly Peter, fumbling for words, afraid to be in front of others. And suddenly he was a man in charge. Or a lame man by the side of the road with no reason ever to be allowed into the temple and no possibility of ever walking and you changed his life. Lord, by your spirit and by your son though, we pray for this, that you would continue to change lives today. Including the lives of those of us who have sung his praise and trusted his word and leaned on his name for many years, and others of us who have only just met him, and some of us who may never have trusted him. Help us to know how deeply you desire to change our lives and our world, and make it real today. We pray this all in his name. Amen.